Good morning, Peachtree. It is such a joy for us to get to be together again and to be able to gather around God's word and to celebrate his abundant goodness in your life and in mine. Thanks for tuning in and engaging and joining our hearts together as we seek his faithfulness as a community. I want to begin today with a story about a judge in Alabama who decided to get creative with somebody who had stolen from a Walmart. The judge was tired of all the shoplifting and decided to lean into his sentencing in a whole new way. What the judge ended up doing was forcing the criminal to stand outside of that Walmart for eight hours holding a sign that said, I'm a thief on it. Now, you can imagine that many people had many different reactions to this type of sentencing. Some thought that it was absolutely important and perfect. Other people thought that there was no way that a judge should make somebody do this. Now, when you looked at the variety of different opinions about it, there was kind of three different classifications to maybe how you saw that same event. I want to put these three different classifications before you. Embarrassment, guilt, and shame. If you saw this as embarrassing, you thought, no problem, this is even funny. If you thought that this was a moment of guilt, you said, well, it's probably justified. But if it was an act of shame, it shouldn't be done. You see, embarrassment is a a momentary or temporary awkwardness. Guilt is a state of being in the wrong. You know, sometimes we feel bad when we shouldn't, and sometimes we don't feel bad when we should. Guilt is both an objective and a subjective reality. Sorry to get a little philosophical on you there for a moment. And then shame is different from guilt because shame is not about what happened or what went wrong or what offense was done. Shame goes to a deeper wound that says, not that I did something wrong, but that there is something wrong with me. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that there was a judge in your life that knew everything about you and that this judge was going to put a sign around your neck and it was going to list a word that described you. I'm alone. I'm an addict. I'm angry. I've been abused. Imagine if someone marked you with a mark of shame. And then imagine that there was a judge that was above that judge who had the authority to change not just your sign, but your story. That there was a judge that could change your sign that said alone to that you are loved. A sign that said you're addicted to you are freed. A sign that said you were angry to a sign of peace. And a sign that was maybe around your neck that talked about you being abused and that you are now cherished. You're healed. You're restored. I believe that this is a promise that the scripture backs up. The prophet Zephaniah says that there will come a day when I will change their shame 
into praise. This is what we long for in the person of Jesus. This is what we're about to see for a woman whose story and sign is about to be changed. We're in the midst of a series of messages going through the Gospel of John. And John tells us what his thesis is, what the emphasis of why he wrote all these downs. He says this, he says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And what that means for us is that you and I experience the no longer of the gospel, that there are parts of our lives that are irrevocably changed. In other words, you and I are no longer cynical. We are no longer empty. We are no longer religious. We're no longer, today we're going to talk about being no longer ashamed. Jesus will turn our shame into praise. And that the way that that starts is that at first he treats us with dignity. Let's see how this plays out in the Gospel of John starting in the fourth verse. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw the wall, draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus treats us with dignity. This conversation should never have happened. Let me illustrate. You know, Samaria was considered to be off limits for Jews to to go to. In fact, people would have gone around Samaria even at great inconvenience. Jesus is cutting a corner by going through Samaria The reason that Samaria was considered to be off limits for the Jews was because they were considered to be traitors, half-breeds. They were a part of the northern kingdom that intermarried and worshipped other gods. And so they they were considered to be some of the most hated rivals of the Jews. And so it is absolutely shocking because Jews and Samaritans, as you see in the explanation of the story, they do not associate with one another. They do not engage in conversation with one another. But the second reason that this conversation should have never, ever, ever happened was because this was a conversation between a man and a woman in a public place. Men and women 
in ancient Judaism, particularly a single man, did not engage in conversation like this with women. You can tell from the surprise of her and later in the story of the surprise of the disciples that Jesus is actually speaking with her. This conversation should never have happened. And yet breaking through all of the demographics, breaking through all of the different stereotypes, breaking through all of the conventional understanding of what you should and should not do, Jesus treats this woman, this Samaritan, with the utmost indignity. I don't want you to miss the contrast that Eugene Peterson kind of shows for us between what we've experienced last week when we talked about Jesus and Nicodemus and here we are Jesus with this Samaritan woman. I want to put these differences between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 on the screen. John chapter 3, we've got a man. In John chapter 4, we've got a woman. John chapter 3 takes place in the city. John chapter 4 takes place in the country. John chapter 3 talks with an insider. John chapter 4 is dealing with an outsider. John chapter 3, you're dealing with a religious professional. John chapter 4, you're dealing with definitely a lay person, and that might even be generous. John chapter 3 is someone who's respected. John chapter 4 is someone who is disgraced. We're going to see that in just a few moments. John chapter 3 is somebody who's orthodox. John chapter 4, uh, she's someone's a heretic. She doesn't have rife beliefs about God. John chapter 3 is where Nicodemus is the initiator. In John chapter 4, um, Jesus is the responder. In John chapter 3, we know Nicodemus's name. In John chapter 4, we do not know her name. She's anonymous. And so Eugene Peterson's conclusion is this. His conclusion is that in John chapter 3, a human's reputation is at risk. In John chapter 4, God's reputation is at risk. He treats us with dignity. And so what I want you to know is that when I was in college, I remember my college director coming to have lunch with me, and I met him outside. This was when I was later in college. I met him outside, and we walked through the line together to get all of our food, and it took forever. It was driving me crazy because he was speaking with every person that we encountered, not just the people in line with us, the other students, but particularly the people who were serving the food. He was asking them questions. He was calling them by name because they were wearing their name tags he was inquiring as to their life. It took us forever to get through the line, and we finally sat down at the table like 15 or 20 minutes later. We only had now like a, a few minutes to, to eat together before I had to get to class. And so I was kind of poking fun at him for you know, taking so long to get through the line, and then he must be an extrovert even greater than I was. And he laughed, and he said, Rich, you need to understand this isn't about being an extrovert. It's about the gospel. And that every single day, you have a chance to bring Jesus to this dining hall. And that the people who serve you food and the people that sit around you long to be treated with dignity. And will you live your life overlooking them? Or will you live your life seeking them out to give them that dignity with your attention? That was a powerful lesson for me. I've forgotten everything else about that conversation. But I watched in a little case study him treat people with dignity and that that was a part of what Jesus radically did. 
And so the first change in the way that shame becomes praise is that he treats us with dignity. And then secondly, he asks of us honesty. He asks of us honesty. Here's how the Gospel of John puts it in the story. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. This encounter happens at high noon. What you need to know contextually is that noon was not a time in the heat of the day when you would typically go and draw water for a well. The reason that this woman was drawing water from a well at noon was because that was a time when the other people would not have been drawing water as well. Usually that would have happened early in the morning or later in the evening. So this conversation should never have happened because she's a Samaritan. It shouldn't have happened because she's a woman. And it shouldn't have happened because she's a notorious sinner. And Jesus exposes that sin with a question. I love how Max Lucado describes it. He puts it like this. Her heart must have sunk. Here was a Jew who didn't care if she was a Samaritan. Here was a man who didn't look down on her as a woman. Here was the closest thing to gentleness that she'd ever seen. And now he was asking her about that? Anything but that. Maybe she considered lying. Oh, my husband, he's busy. Maybe she wanted to change the subject. Perhaps she wanted to leave, but she stayed and she told the truth. I have no husband. For kindness has a way of inviting honesty. Why? Because you've wanted to do the same thing. You've wanted to take off your mask. You've wanted to stop pretending. You've wanted what God would do. You've wondered what God would do if you opened your cobweb-covered door of secret sin. This woman wondered what Jesus would do. She must have wondered if the kindness would cease when the truth was revealed. He will be angry. He will leave. He'll think I'm worthless. And yet there was no criticism, no anger. No, what kind of mess have you made of your life lectures? No, it wasn't perfection that Jesus was seeking. It was honesty. There was a great scientific study that had been done that was reported that I read about in the Harvard Business Review. It was a study that was done of over 4,000 people, and it was on the art of confessing and its impacts. And what they discovered in this study is that those people who confessed, but didn't confess all the way, they only partially confessed, they didn't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, they just told a little bit of the truth. They were telling the truth in order to relieve their conscience, not to clear the air. And as a result, they actually felt worse because it was almost a little bit of the truth was almost a lie upon a lie. And so their conclusion was this. Confession is a powerful way to relieve guilt, but it only works if you tell the whole truth. One time, a couple came to my office when I was a pastor in Texas. They were sitting on the couch. They'd been married for several years, and the husband needed to confess an affair. He wanted to do it in my office because he was scared that he was going to lose the conviction 
if he didn't have moral support. And he was scared of his wife's reaction. And so he told what had happened. What was amazing was the lack of surprise on her face. She said, I know about the affair, but I've needed you to say it. And now I need you to tell me all of it. Hold nothing back or this relationship is over. What that woman knew is that a relationship cannot flourish on deception. And then in order for there to be a future, there had to be honesty. And so first, Jesus treats us with dignity and then he asks us, not for perfection, but for honesty. And then he shares his identity. Here's what the Gospel of John says. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Several years ago when we lived in California, I got a phone call from a friend in the congregation. This friend in the congregation said, hey, if you're not doing anything tomorrow morning on a Saturday, first thing, um, meet me at Disneyland uh, right by the flagpole because I want to show you something cool. Well, the reason that we took this request seriously is that the person on the other side of the line was none other than Michael Colglazer, who at the time was the president of Disneyland. And the thing that he wanted to show us was something really special that you wouldn't normally get to see. Here's a picture of the two of us together, and then here's a picture of what he wanted to show us. Not the fire department, but what was inside the fire department on the upstairs where you might see the beginning of that Christmas tree. This is Walt Disney's personal apartment that he had built into Disneyland, and it's not on any tour. So we're standing in kind of the main street plaza by the flagpole. We're so excited because we're about to walk over and to go upstairs just to take a peek at it. And as we're about to uh, walk over that way, there is a family and there is a, a little boy in that family who's holding a map and they see Michael walk by and he's got, as, as every Disney cast member does, the, the white name tag with just your first name, no title on it. And the family stops him and the little boy asks a question and Michael gets down on one knee to try to address the little boy's questions. The little boy actually wanted to know where Star Wars Land was on the map. And the reason that Star Wars Land, the Galaxy's Edge, was not on the map was because it was still under construction. But Michael stooped, kneeled, took his time, and started to explain um, how it was going to work and where it was going to be. That little boy had no idea that that man was the president of Disneyland. But as Michael began to share with that little boy, they figured it out. But more importantly, he revealed to that little boy that he was the president of Disneyland and he was hearing what the boy was asking. Now, while this is going on, my wife Kelly is having a conversation with one of the parents. And uh, while that's going on, she discovers something, that this is a foster child, 
and she discovers that this is like the family's 20th foster child over the course of like 20 or 25 years. And that one of their commitments as a family is to save their money and to take each of their foster children to Disneyland. When Michael got up from sharing the map and explaining with the young boy and revealing his identity, uh, Kelly said to Michael and explained the whole situation, the bigger picture. Michael said, excuse me, and he got on the phone. He got on the phone as that family's making its way down Main Street, and he identified them. And I have no idea what kind of pixie dust Disney magic was coming their way, but I have a feeling that what Michael was explaining on the, floor, uh, on the phone was that that family's journey through Disney was going to be unlike any other. He revealed his identity, and he shared his credibility so that their story would be changed. I don't want you to miss this in John chapter 4. It's the most remarkable thing about this chapter. Here's a woman, here's an outsider, here is somebody who is considered to be a notorious sinner. This is the first time that Jesus shares his identity plain and clear with anyone. He shares it with her, the Messiah, the one that you've been longing for, the one that you've been praying for, the one that people argue about and try to figure out when he's coming. I am he. The gospel of John is held together by all of these different I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. All these different I am statements. The first I am statement is this one. Ego a me in the Greek. I am going all the way back to Exodus and the burning bush where God himself reveals himself as Yahweh, as the living God, as the one who was and is and is to come. He reveals himself to Moses in the same way in this moment, this woman at the well in the midst of all of her shame. She is about to experience the holiness of God saying, I am he. I believe Jesus still does this today. I believe through his spirit, he will whisper to you his identity and share his credibility. And that your journey through this life will never be the same. How does shame become praise? He treats us with dignity. He asks of us honesty. He shares his identity. And finally... He gives us our liberty. You're going to love this part of the story. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Gospel of John begins with the invitation, before the invitation to follow me is the invitation to come and see, come and see, it's repeated. The end of the Gospel of John ends with the invitation that Jesus gives to Peter, come and have breakfast. Come and see, come and see, come and see, come and see, all the way through the Gospel of John. Now she becomes not just the recipient of coming and seeing, now she becomes the one who invites others to come and see. And she's no longer ashamed. She's no longer defined by her guilt or by embarrassment. 
Her life is no longer marked by the sign of what she's done. She says, come and see. She's completely open and transparent and honest because of the kindness and the identity-shaping transformational work of Jesus the Christ. We know this because she leaves her water jar behind. The reason she came at high noon is now long behind her. She runs back to town to tell all that she has seen. I want to introduce you to Daniel Ritchie and his family. Daniel is a remarkable person. And you might not notice in this picture until I show you the next one, one of the distinguishing factors that makes him so remarkable. He was born with no arms. When he was born with no arms, they did not realize it at the time. And when he came out of his mother's womb, he was also struggling to breathe. And the doctor asked the mother, because he was not breathing, do you want us to just let him go? The mother cried that they should fight for his life. And he began to breathe. He struggled his whole life with not only the disability, but also the visibility of his disability. He wished and he longed that God would give him a stutter or something else that he could just hide by being quiet. But everything that he had to learn how to do, he had to do with his feet. He writes with his feet. He eats with his feet. Everything he does, he does with his toes. If you were to see him in the store today, you would see him pay for his groceries with his feet. You couldn't hide it. And he felt ashamed. One day he heard a preacher and the preacher quoted Psalm 139. I praise you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And what happened in his life in that moment is that his sign that would have said no arms got rewritten in the gospel to fearfully and wonderfully made. the Lord of all, the King of all, the Messiah, the one that we've been longing for, changed his sign and his story. And so I want to put these four things back up on the screen. I don't know where you are in your journey of your shame, but Jesus doesn't want you to just get past your shame or through it. He wants to turn your shame into praise. Do you need the dignity, the honesty, the credibility of his identity, or the liberty? Daniel Ritchie now lives his life sharing the gospel, and he does so without any arms. He doesn't have to hide anymore, and neither do you. 
one of the first evangelists was a Samaritan woman that we don't even know her name. The first person to whom Jesus leaned in and said, the one you've been looking for is me. I'm here. I'm with you. This is how shame becomes praise. Jesus will rewrite your story. He will rewrite your sign. And no judge can do anything about it. Let's pray. Eternal loving Father, I'm so grateful for the nature of your gospel that begins with the dignity and it ends with our liberty. Lord, for any of us that need to be honest with you and to not only just partially confess, but fully bear and lay out our lives before you, not that you don't know it, but that you need us to say it. That no relationship can flourish on the basis of deception. Lord, I pray for anybody who has not heard you whisper the name that is above every name and that you are here and available, revealing yourself to them. Lord, help us to have a courage of a a Daniel Ritchie to no longer see the liabilities and the limitations and the disabilities of our lives as holding us back because we have been fearfully and wonderfully made And now in Jesus, we have been redeemed. Lord, take the shame that people feel, the guilt that is ours to own, the journey of not just what we've done, but those moments where we think that we are wrong. And we now lay them before you, the great healer, the one who causes us to leave our water jars behind pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.